When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dan Moran. I am thrilled to be here today with Michael Elliott, author of Have a Little Faith, The John Hyatt Story, published in 2021 by Chicago Review Press. Welcome, Michael. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Well, thanks for coming on the show. As a, as a fellow admirer of John Hyatt, I am so eager to dive into your book and, and talk about what I've learned from it. But before we get into the book, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I am um, a freelance writer. Uh, I just started that uh, my foray into that about five years ago, really, uh, even though I've been writing my whole life. Uh, but I was in radio for about 30 years, and that's where um, I, I got to interview a lot of great artists from Little Richard to Deborah McClinton and, and, and everybody in between. Um, and And... I would like to say that's where I made contacts and connections, but, uh, you know, not really. It's just that uh, I knew where to go to ask, you know. Um, And then from there, uh, I'm now writing. I retired from radio. Uh, I have a day job. I work for the Department of Public Safety in North Carolina. Uh, But my, my passion is writing. My passion is music. And why not put them both together? Um, So that's, that's basically about me. <laughs> well, your passion for John Hyatt comes through loud and clear. And, you know, your book is terrific because I think it's difficult to easily categorize because it's part biography. So you get the nuts and bolts of Hyatt's life, but it's also a biography of his recording career. And you really get into like the nuts and bolts of these different albums and what producer he worked with and who 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 brought on this kind of sound and who brought out that kind of sound. And um, like your book, you know, John Hyatt's a little difficult to categorize too, right? You quote this producer, Matt Wallace, saying, Hyatt didn't fit into any obvious boxes for the sake of easy marketing, right? So that that's hard. That's a challenge of writing about Hyatt. Plus you have Elvis Costello's famous line, or at least it's attributed to him, who wrote your introduction, who said, um, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. So there's all these challenges, right? Anyway, let's do it anyway. Who is John Hyatt and how would you possibly describe his music to someone who's never heard it? Um, John Hyatt is known mainly <clears throat> as a songwriter. And of course, a songwriter's songwriter is, is what people usually call him. Um, he was not really a singer songwriter in the, in the, um, in the tradition of a Harry Chapin or a Jim Croce or people like that. The, the, he's more of a rocker, uh, and, and, but he writes songs, he crafts them, for other people to sing. That's what he did for many years. And, and I guess I would describe him as first and foremost, a songwriter, but 
when you bring up that, when you say that to people, they think, oh, he's just going to sit in a room and 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 turn out music all, uh, songs all day. But no, he's a performer. Uh, if if you've ever seen him live, he is. Uh, one of the most electrifying live performers uh, out there, and and still, uh, he's on tour right now, as we speak. As a matter of fact, and 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 with with the Goners, um, and he is still smiling and jumping around and having the time of his life, even though he's just shy of his seventieth birthday, which is uh, th- this year. Um, but I, I would say he's an electrifying live performer. He is a fantastic singer, um, very underrated in that in that realm. Uh, he, he is deeply into the blues uh, style, uh, blues and R&B, which he is often not credited for. Uh, he gets lumped in now with the Americana crowd, which is fine because that's, that's where they all go now, um, the old rockers. But uh, he, he's really a rocker and a blues man at heart, in my opinion. Yeah, you talk in your book about how the, that that label Americana didn't exist for for a long part of his career, and now it's just easy shorthand for trying to trying to describe something that's difficult to describe. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I did a lot of homework for this interview, and it was great, great fun homework. And I want to get a reaction to a, a little anecdote. Uh, you know, I wanted to fill in the gaps of what I missed for John Hyatt, right? So you know every note inside and out. So I was filling in what I missed. So this is a true story. I'm painting my kid's room, and I have John Hyatt on Spotify, and it's going through his career. And and I hear Memphis in the meantime, okay. And I hear, you know, the tiki bar is open, and I got that paint roller going, and I'm doing the cutting, and everything's going on, and I'm singing along. And then this song comes on I never heard before, and it was the song light of the burning sun. And I start listening to it because it's a quiet song. I'm trying to catch the lyrics. And within a minute, I'm just standing there holding my paintbrush, staring at the speaker. And it knocked the wind out of me. And later on, I thought, well, that's John Hyatt. You go from the tiki bar to the light of the burning sun, right? How would you, can you comment on that story? What would you say about that story? Well, that's the extent of human emotion, really. That's all of us. Cause we, we, we have moments where we're joyful. We have moments when we're sad and, and, and uh, listening to a John Hyde album, those are two different albums, of course, but, but the, it'll take you on that journey, no matter what album you put on. Uh, there are moments of joy, moments of melancholy and, and, um, taking that into effect. Yeah. I've, I've had that journey myself, uh, riding down the road, listening to him, you know, is it, even in the manner of one song, if he could be ha- having a, a, a funny song and there'll be a line in there that, th- that makes you go, Whoa. And, and, and it's deep. And then on the other hand, it could be a really sad or you think it's a sad song and he'll throw a line in there, a curveball. It'll make you just laugh uh or at least snicker at the 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 absurdity of it all um and it's it's a sobering thought um but i mean that's 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 basically the 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 way i look at it that seems why that's that's why he's so paired so well with elvis costello who wrote the introduction because they both have that kind of quality right of 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 a of a phrase that leaps out of nowhere and just kind of grabs you by the lapels right yeah yeah so let's talk about that song, Light of the Burning Sun, a little more because, you know, after I heard it, I connected it to what I learned from your book. So can you talk about that, the specific connection of that song and also about Hyatt's growing up in Indianapolis? The the interesting thing, when I was talking to him, uh, interviewing him for the book, he was in the process of recording this album. I, I had no idea that I had not heard this song until later, you know, after I I'd, I'd turned the book in, as a matter of fact. Um and I was like, well, wow, he was really, it, it, I caught him at just the perfect time 
I believe, because I think he was just in a reflective mood and and he was uh, very open because John uh, traditionally, as far as uh, uh, critics and, and interviewers and people in the media are concerned, he's had a reputation of being difficult or, or at least very private. And, um, and I knew that going in, but I was lucky. I don't know. I just caught him at a good time. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, everything was shut down. Uh, people, everybody was in a reflective mood. Nobody was on the road. Uh, and he just so happened to be working with Jerry Douglas at the time at studio B in Nashville, recording this album, which turned out to be uh, leftover feelings. And, and on that album is the slide of the burning sun, which details his, uh, his childhood, uh, his older brother, Michael, and he, who, who committed suicide. Um, and he was 11 and John was 11 years old. Michael was 20, uh, 21 and or 22 when it happened. And um, it was devastating to John. It was a, as it would be for anybody, but it was a turning point in his life. Um, and it goes deeper in the book about it, it, their relationship even further that the song doesn't go into. But um, it was it was a very traumatic situation. And, and he had to to live, learn to live with that for the rest of his life. And it still affects him. It, it, you could tell with this song is the first time he addressed it in, in a, in an album or in, or in song. So um, I think he was exercising it in a way, uh, getting it out. And so, and which, which I'm very proud of him for doing. And, and I'm glad he opened up to me in the book about it as well. Yeah, it's a powerful song and a powerful part of the book. Um, you also talk about his father, who was who was literally larger than life, mm-hmm. right? And 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 about him growing up in in you know in Indianapolis. What was his childhood like? What was his dad like? He was uh, he he was a child uh, who had there were seven, and um, he was one of seven. And he was Catholic family, and his dad very overweight, um, a a. A loving man, although he was difficult and he was a salesman, uh, they didn't see him much. And and when they did get to see him, he, John doesn't have many happy memories of him, you know, where they bonded. But um, he did. He I think he tried to make the best for his family because you can you can imagine being you know middle class living in Indianapolis in in the fifties, uh, Broad Ripple actually the community, and uh, in the in the early fifties and up into the sixties where he was trying to make a life for his family and um, he just had his hands full. And of course he had a weight problem. He had a gambling problem and uh, there was just all these little secrets running around in the house uh, for, for, you know, extended family. And um, I go into that a little bit in the book. Um, But his, his mother and father were, um, you know, it's not really, he didn't go into any like real trauma between them and him, but he, he, he talked about the, the difficulty growing up in that time. Yeah. And it all comes up in, in, in the song, your dad did, which is <laughs> you end up just like your dad, just like your dad did. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's, that's one of those songs where it's, it's funny. And then at the same time, you realize maybe not till after it's over, you go back and listen to it and go and think, yeah, that's dark, man. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That great moment in your life where you realize, Oh, I'm just like my father. I'm just like him. Yeah. So that's great. So that, that part about high growing up is great because it reminded me, I mean, it's great for a lot of reasons, but one thing that it, it, it made me think about were all the biographies I've read about Bob Dylan. I'm sure you've read all the same books, right? Where, you know, you hear about him growing up in Hibbing, Minnesota and, 
And there's this idea, and this, and I wrote this right down in the margins of your book, this idea that you hear something on the radio and like it pulls you spiritually out of this, this place you're living, right? I remember Bob Dylan says somewhere like, uh, I, thought I, I thought I was born to the wrong parents the first time I, you know, I heard this music on the radio. And you quote John Hyatt as saying, and here's a quote from your book, groundbreaking disc jockeys changed my life. So that's a big statement. So can you talk about the pull of the radio and how it helped Hyatt, you know, change his life and get out of Indianapolis? I knew I knew where he was coming from with that because it was the same thing. I, it happened to me even at, but I, I loved it so much I jumped in the radio, you know. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, D- Dylan and and Hyatt are, are you know they have a lot of similarities. The Midwest, the uh, growing up listening to the radio and, and and all that, and and wanting to go away. And probably Dylan's a little older, you know. Well, about eleven years older than John, but still similar trajectories as far as uh growing up in that listening to rock and roll and all that where where um uh dylan had already made a name for himself by the time john really got into to rock and roll but and, and and as a matter of fact one of the guys he listened to was bob dylan um he i think there was i don't I remember if i put it in the book but there was a point where he was listening to visions of johanna um over and over. Some interviews he says visions of Johanna. Others he says sad-eyed ladies of the lowland. But either way, it's a blonde on blonde track. And he he played it for for weeks at a time. Uh, he did the same thing with fingertips uh, by Stevie Wonder to the point where his sisters were concerned for his health. You know, <laughs> but uh, he got into the folky thing. But but yeah, the the disc jockeys were was WLAC and and uh, out of of Nashville uh and Memphis these were um uh, Hoss, the Hoss and uh, Hoss Allen and and all these other great uh, disc jockeys um that people remember from back in the and I'm sure Alan Freed for a certain generation as well but uh Indianapolis as I say in the book is not is you're not going to head there to make it you know you're not uh, in the music business you know you're not going to go to Indy you're going to go from Indy, you're going to go to New Orleans, to LA, to New York, to Nashville. Um, so when he heard this music, um, you know, there were some great indie bands. I mean, they, they, the McCoys and all these guys, but Rick Derringer and those guys, but they, they left to, to make it big elsewhere. And that's what John was seeing in, in the radio was, was, and, and as he points out, he was a Catholic kid and he heard all this, he would go to church and sing along with all the Latin and then hear, gospel music coming out of uh, Tennessee and it just blew his mind, you know? Um, and I, and I laughed about that. We talked about that a little bit because I grew up Southern Baptist, uh, in, in, um, North Carolina. And so I, I grew up with the, with, with the Southern gospel, uh, is second nature. It's part of my DNA. And, but I married a Catholic who, uh, who <laughs> yeah, <they don't. laughs> I came out of an opposite direction. So that's a uh, musical mixed marriage. That's right. <laughs> but I bring her around to mine. Uh, easily. It's, it's, it's easy to do. <laughs> well, that's a great part in the book. You say you quote, I think John Hyatt said that Indianapolis was the capital of insurance. <laughs> right? It's not music city, right? No, it's, no, no. Now, yeah. the racing they had the indy 500 but that's you know right that not a not a musical mecca <laughs> and so much of that is lost on readers today including myself that whole idea of, of like of like at night trying to get the signal in you know with the perfect and hearing a voice at the other end as opposed to now when you, you pay your spotify every month or your apple music and and you you have this library of music at your fingertips so i can listen to any john hyatt song at any moment 
that I want, and that's great. But you also lose something. You lose that excitement of of where is this coming from, and and who picked these songs for me? Right, and that's well, that's a that's a whole other show. But yeah, that's the the, the regionality of music is gone, you know, and and uh, there it, it does bring us closer together on one hand, but on the other hand, you know, it's it's so compartmentalized at times. Um, you know, back in those days, you could hear. Stevie Wonder and 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 maybe uh, Porter Wagner on the and then Ray Charles all on the same radio station. Where um, now you if you don't want to, the algorithms will make you listen to um, oh I don't know nothing but uh, 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 jazz uh, adult contemporary jazz for for uh, schmaltz like Dave Koz and all those guys um, for and, and never discover anything new unless it sounds exactly like Kenny G or something. So. Um, you know, and I love uh, the satellite radio, but um, I mean, you not only have classic rock now, uh, you not only have rock, you have classic rock. Then you in the classic rock, you have vinyl cuts of classic rock, which I don't understand because they're not playing vinyl. But <laughs> but you have a certain subset of a subset of a subset, and that's all they're going to play on that certain station. And I'm like, man, put it all together and let's you know, let's have some fun with it. So one of my takeaways from your book, and one of the things that I enjoyed so much about it was this idea that songwriting is work. Like you don't just, you don't, there's this romantic notion that you sit with your guitar and watch the sunset and then you actually write the song Lipstick Sunset. But one of the things that you you taught me in the book is that there's a lot of sitting in empty rooms with a piano trying to get things right. And Hyatt, I had I had no idea, had that experience of, of, of cranking out songs for his day job, right? Can you talk about that? Yeah, he got a job at uh, Tree Publishing. Uh, it's quite a funny thing because he grew up listening to the radio you know and 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 he was uh he said okay i'm gonna be a, a musician i'm gonna be a rock star i'm gonna go uh, sing for people or or a folk star or however he wanted to do it and he meets this guy bob frank and and uh bob frank is just one of these troubadour guys folk singer great dude um and and a fantastic self-titled album that came out in 71 um 72 sorry and so he he meets John. And he says, "Yeah, I'm I'm." This before his album came out, but he said, "I've got a I've got a deal with Tree Publishing where uh, they pay me this certain amount of money, just a little pittance, but uh, uh, for me to write songs, and and I get it every week." And he said, "You get paid to just write songs?" And he he, he it didn't never he didn't know he didn't know that. So he said, "Well, I could do that." And so, <laughs> so they, he goes up to uh, he he meets all these publishing companies up and down the street, you know, in Nashville, and finally he hits uh, Tree Publishing last. He said he he saved that for last before he he decided to give up, and uh, they liked his stuff, and so uh, yeah, he sits up shop there, and um, he sits in a little room, and it's basically a nine to five gig. He has uh, and, and John Hyatt cannot read or write music. Um, in the traditional sense. So what he did was he sat down with the tape recorder and or reel to reel, and and performed uh, just with his guitar and just came up with these songs uh, all day every day. Um, and then um, I, I believe it was uh, Killen, Buddy Kilman. He said that um, Hyatt had boxes and boxes of these songs. And Denny Bruce tells me in the book that you know he he went through every one of them. And he was just writing for people. As I said earlier, it was a craft, it was a job. And, and he was writing in the style of, of these people that, that uh, he knew had hits. And he said, okay, well, I'll write a song like this, you know, and like that. And so it was, 
you know, people talk about authenticity and all this stuff, but um, there was a living and that's what all songwriters did. And so we're going to write a song for, for this person or that person. And, and, and he's going to sound like um, Randy Newman on one song. He may sound like three dog night on the other. They liked it so much. They picked up uh, a song. Of his. They didn't, he didn't even pitch it to them. They just heard it and decided they wanted to, uh, to record it. And that was sure as I'm sitting here, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And then three dog night when people, they had such pull that, you know, they were champions of great songwriters from Laura Nero to, to, uh, um, Hoyt Axton and all these people. So when, when, when they pulled a John Hyatt song out of the hat, uh, people took notice. They said, well, yeah. look at this guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so you, and you talk about, you talk about, you know, Bonnie Raitt's, fa- you know, famous covers of his and him with Roseanne Cash later on in the book. Um, but the centerpiece of your book, and you would kind of allude to it in the beginning, and you, and you kind of come off it. If, if the if the book has a plot, the climax of it, I would say, is the recording of "Bring the Family," and, and about making that album, right? So you contend, you mentioned more than once that that's kind of the you know that's like the keystone of his career. You don't say it's his best album, or because you give him a lot of credit for trying a lot of different kind of sounds, right? But I, I, you get the feeling as a reader, okay, if Michael Elliott can say, "Listen, you get one album by John Hyatt, you, you won't bring the family," right? So. Talk to me about what it is about that album that you think is so compelling, like artistically and so important in, in Hyatt's story. He, he, he spent his, he spent his career up to that point, uh, searching for, for a sound that he thought people wanted to hear. In my opinion, he's, his first two albums were sort of a freak folk, um, um, mid seventies singer songwriter folk thing. And, um, and then he goes off into the new wave, um, for lack of a better term. But it was the Elvis Costello era, you know. And uh, he wanted to be the, they, they wanted him to be the American Elvis. And um, but he was really he was taken oh, from that the the stiff record sound, you know. He loved the the Nick Lowe produced stuff coming out of of England at the time. Um, so he he latched onto that. Um, and then, you know, I believe it was by the time, of course, there's the whole arc of him getting sober and stuff and, and his, his wife, uh, his second wife committing suicide. Um, it, it helped him straighten up. And he, I, I think it was that clarity of mind where he realized that he needs to stop writing for, I don't say writing for other people, but just writing what he thinks people want to hear and just digging deep and writing what he wants to say. Um, and without the, now he'd been, you know, kind of snarky and, and, and he, he'd had that Elvis Costello vibe too, you know, and um, the smirk on his face while he's doing a slug line and all these things. But, but uh, here's where he dug deep and looked at himself and, and, and the centerpiece of that uh, bring the family is have a little faith in me. And I, and, and, and I really didn't think about it. Maybe it's, it was obvious to some people, but I didn't think about it until I talked to him where he, he said that when he was writing that song, he was actually thinking about himself and he was singing to himself about that. And I thought, well, that's pretty doggone uh, profound. <laughs> so he was talk, trying to convince himself to have faith in himself that he would be there. Cause he, if you, and, and it's poignant because if you're not, if you don't, want to help yourself you're not ever gonna get help you know and 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 so he had that was him convincing himself uh and so that album runs the gamut of of 
of you got your humor with with uh, Memphis in the meantime, but at the same time, it's a willing, it's a it's a need to escape the humdrum of daily life. You got the the dark night of the soul and alone in the dark, and you got the 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 excitement of new love with with a couple of songs, and then you got the the at the same time you're regretting the 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 suicide of his wife. He regrets the relationship, how it turned out, you know, with with uh, maybe lipstick sunset and. and tip of my tongue so and then he talks about his dad and your dad did like we talked about but it's and, and is is complete uh an amazing uh, to me the greatest moment on the album is 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 uh is stood up and uh where he confronts his uh, his sobriety and his past you know um and his first wife even in that song but um it's just a tour de force as they say uh a note to use an overused cliche but uh, it definitely is. And I think that is a, a true masterpiece um, that came out at the time when America was kind of when the music industry was moving a little toward roots rock uh, because of the John Mellencamp's and all that. You know, that was the same year that Lonesome Jubilee came out. So they were. But at the same time, there was still a lot of slickness in in on radio and this was really really raw and organic recorded in four days with no overdubs you know <laughs> with an amazing band so um it, it's just uh yeah that's where you start to me hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price priceline even even the cover is authentic. The the photo now you tell a story in the book about the original cover, right? And how the, and how they opted for a different cover of of just Hyatt's face. Can you tell that story? Yeah, the UK version had a uh, an, a, a very strange picture that they <laughs> still don't know the exact origin of it, but it was a, a mother and father. It's an old family, looks like an old family portrait from the uh, 19th century. But uh, when you look a little closer, you see that three the three kids in the picture are ventriloquist dummies, um, and so. Uh, or marionettes, <laughs> very creepy and uh, but but hilarious at the same time. So it's it's quite dry and tongue in cheek. But I think A and M for the states um, that was put that was put out on Demon Records, you know, very closely linked with with Costello and the guys. But in um, in in the states, you know, A and M is like, what is this? No, <laughs> so let's go with the old tried and true artist headshot. But I will say that headshot is 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 quite fascinating it's just nothing but a uh, uh, dark background uh, and 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 the expression on his face um is i, I found it very captivating because it's like he's he's i get from that picture on on uh, the cover of bring the family that he's not resigned but it's like well this has been my life and this is where i am now yeah and, this is this is what i got at this point yeah it's an acceptance that i and i love that it's like take it or leave it here i am yeah. So, you know, let's, let's, I want to jump ahead to something you said before about him confronting his sub- sobriety. So, part of his biography, which you cover in the book, is his alcoholism, his recovery. You have some drug abuse in there as well. But I want to get your reaction to a quote from your book. This is from um, Have a Little Faith. Quote When you ask an addict about his particular rock bottom, it's not always clear cut. They all have their own process. Sometimes it's spiritual, 
Sometimes it's a legal matter that snaps them out of it. For John, it was a drive through the deep south in the company of a Dutch woman. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah. The, on the album Leftover Feelings, again, I did not know he was doing this in parallel to our conversation, but uh, uh, there's a song called Mississippi Phone Booth, and he actually recounts that uh, without giving it all away, uh, which is what great songwriters do. Um, but it, he took this girl, he met this girl over in, in, in the, he had been touring the Netherlands, and where he's... He, huge following over there. Um, and so while he was there, he met this little Dutch girl. And uh, unfortunately, that's all she's known as. Um, but, you know, not to dehumanize her in any way, but that's all we, it's all anybody ever knew her as, you know, Nick Lowe, everybody. But, um, and, and no names were given, which I understand uh, for obvious reasons. But he, in his drunken state of mind or in his messed up state of mind, he decided that the best way to reconcile his marriage to Isabella, his second wife is to, uh, is have an affair or, or not really to have an affair, but to bring the girl he was having an affair with over to America from the Netherlands. Uh, and, and he said he still couldn't make sense of why he did that now looking back, but he took her on a drive in the deep South to show her, you know, I guess he was being like the cool guy. Look, uh, look, look at all this authentic Southern land that, I, you know, um, and this is what I sing about, you know, and all this type of thing. And this is where roots of America, I can hear him now, you know, <laughs> the roots of the blues come in here, baby, you know, and all this stuff driving in, uh, in his uh, Camaro and all that. And, um, and and just something happened there. Um, his uh, he had uh, he had some cocaine and some vodka and all this stuff, and 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 it just they just ran out or it just wouldn't work anymore. And he found himself in the middle of the night at a at a phone booth at some service station in Mississippi, and he decided to call his ex wife and try to get back together right there. Um, and that was his rock bottom, and that's what turned his life around. Uh, and he he brought the the girl back uh, to Nashville and put her on a plane and um, and he then he tried to go back to the West Coast to make up with uh, Isabella. So uh, let me do a, a side question and then we'll get back to John Hyatt. I want to ask you this because you know, you've you've talked to a lot of people in the music industry. You've you've been in it. It's your passion. You've met a lot of people. So a lot of theories about this. And I don't even know if they hold up, but I want to get your take on this. Is there a connection between incredibly talented people like Hyatt and, and like, a, a, you know, abusive alcohol or abusive drugs? Because, you know, we just, it, it, it would have just been a Jerry Garcia's 80th birthday, right? And we think of people like people, some people get clean, like Trey Anastasio, I'm thinking of Eric Clapton, you know, John Hyatt himself, and some sadly do not, right? So is there, is there any connection? People have all kinds of theories of that for, you know, pop psychology, but is there a connection or is that just a, an illusion? One of the, one of the, I will say this, one of the things that I really love about John's story and that I want to make clear from this book, and I hope I made clear, is that um, there is there is a big myth about the suffering artists, that the, 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 the fact that you have to be drunk and, and, and high and, and also miserable to make great art, you know, and, and what John proved in his journey is the fact that he cleaned up and then he became uh, an amazing singer songwriter. He was already great, but uh, his, his most critically 
uh, lauded phase came after he cleaned up and started straightening, uh, being straight with himself and with with uh, the listeners. Um, and 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 people started identifying with him the more he sung about himself uh, and and his own experiences, um, because what is personal is universal. And and and. Um, you know, I think he spent his first many albums looking outward and trying to see how he could uh, be clever. Uh, but, but just looking inward and being true to himself is what made him. And doing it through a clear mind, I can tell you from, uh, and it's funny you asked that question because I, I went through it myself. And, and um, I, I abused alcohol up until, uh, as a matter of fact, it's been 10 years this past January, July 4th, uh, 2012 is when I drank my last drop. Um, so they, and, and, and so after that, uh, my life and my career and all that, you know, well, I got a book to show from the, you know, um, and, and I would never have been able to do it, uh, 10 years ago or so, you know, so, um, great things can happen. Um, and, and I think the, it's the, I'll tell you exactly what it is. In, in my opinion, I think it's the, the pressure of being, um, in the business of, of, of rock music and probably not now as much as it used to be, but I do know, I thought about when, when John first got sober, Nick Lowe was talking about it, how they would play gigs and stuff and they'd be in these bars and all of them are still, Nick would like try quote unquote to stop drinking at the time, but he's still uh, every now and then. Um, but it's all around you. And so you can't help, but you know, if you can't beat them, join them type of thing. So, when you stop drinking as me as a former DJ and I also DJ uh, and I was also in, in local bands and stuff, I was a singer. Uh, and so when you're in that situation, you're in a, uh, around it in bars where people are doing it. And, and our culture is so alcohol driven. Um, you know, it's, it's, you can't escape it. So you've got to be extremely strong. Your will's got to be, you've got to say no, I don't want it. And then you have to put, then you have to put up with people who want you to explain why you're not drinking. I think I saw this thing the other day where it said alcohol is the only drug you have to explain why you're not using it, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's just the peer pressure and the feeling that you have to uh suffer for your art or it'll find you um uh, find some new creative outlets, but yeah, it's it's not true. That story you just told also applies because you, you talked to Bonnie Raitt because you have Bonnie Raitt tells that story in your book as well, correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. She she uh, was around that time. It was the the mid to late eighties is when everybody started realizing in their own way on their own terms. Uh, it was Hyatt and then Bonnie Raitt, um, Paul Barrere uh, of, of, of Little Feet, who had seen his bandmate uh, Lowell George, yeah, Lowell George die prematurely and then um you had Steve Ray Vaughn who unfortunately met his, his demise uh, in a different way l- later but he he cleaned up and uh you had all these people that were in a nucleus uh that it, it was just a great you know peer pressure can go the other way too you could you could do great things and so that's what was happening there. The snowball of sobriety was happening. Um, and so uh, I, I think, and, and then it's funny, Bonnie Ray does the same thing. Nick of time, clean and sober. She, she, her, her career record. And, and uh, she just started getting bigger and bigger after that. 
Yeah. So you, you, you've mentioned before about, about meeting Hyatt, who you refer to as John, right? You, in the notes, you say you interviewed him three times in October of 2020. So what was it? What was he like? What was no, he like when you interviewed him? He was, he was, he was, um, amazingly warm and welcoming. Um, he, the only one time where we, uh, the, at the end of the second interview, I believe he was very tired and, and grateful to be over the interview. But even then he was just gracious as he could be. Um, and, and the, so all three times, and then his wife, Nancy, she was just as, as sweet as she could be. Um, Nancy and I both, you know, be, me being from North Carolina, uh, it's funny. There were a couple of instances. She's one of them when uh, they picked up the phone and I said, hi, Nancy, I'm Michael Elliott. And she said, you are? And I said, yes. And she said, well, okay. I like your voice. She said, I thought you were in New York or something. And I said, no, no, ma'am. I'm, I'm from right here where you are. <laughs> I don't know if that helped the interview or not, but, uh, you know, it, <laughs> uh, and, and, and Bonnie Raid even said, she said, it's just at the end of our interview, she said, it's just good to hear a, a good old Southern voice for a change. I'm living out here in LA. I don't ever hear that. <laughs> Did he put up, did John Hyatt put up any kind of um, like self-deprecating kind of like, uh, you know, not resistance, but something like, uh, what are you writing a book for about me? I'm just like, cause he comes across as that kind of self-effacing guy. He, yeah, he was, he was very humble. Uh, and, and he kept, uh, I had to, you know, sometimes I had to pull some things from him and, and, but he, he, once I did, he, he just opened up um, and, and he was very, yeah, he was very humble about it. I will say I got to give props to Ken Levitin, who uh, his his manager uh, was was just invaluable in in uh, helping me uh, with with John with access to John. Um, and I, I don't know there was uh, I don't know what happened, but uh, I guess I did the I said the right stuff. But um, you know uh, I, I'm grateful for all the the help he gave me and um. um it's funny. I had interviewed Sonny uh, Landreth and and uh, quite a few uh, folks, uh, players, uh, Roseanne Cash, and all those people before I got to John. Um, and and Ken finally he emailed because I had been trying to get John the whole time, and and my publisher had said, you know, you don't need to have an interview with John in order for us to publish his book. It's fine. You know? And, and I thought, well, I can't do that. I got to have, you know, I don't, I, I've read some great books where they don't have participation. I've read some great biographies that way, but that's not how I wanted to play it, you know? Um, but I didn't know what I was going to do for a while. And then, and then one morning on a Sunday morning, Sunday morning. Now I get an email at seven thirty, eight thirty in the morning. And it's, it's, it's my time. This is from Nashville, which is an hour behind. And it was Ken Levitin saying, I hear you wanted, you're writing a book about my client. Tell me more. And I thought, well, this guy's earning his pay. <laughs> well, it's great. They always tell you, they always say never meet your heroes, but it sounds like you met John Hyatt and you weren't disappointed. Everybody in this, uh, everybody in this process has been just wonderful. Yeah. Great to work with. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, you know, there were a couple that turned me down and that's fine. I mean, you know, but I think my batting average, I'm, I'm very proud of. So, you yeah. know, <laughs> and one strength, one stylistic strength of your book, I think is that you have many paragraphs in the book where you say you have a quotation and you say, Hyatt explains, 
or you're talking about, you know, Ry Cooter explains or uh, Ray, does, Ray explains and you, and you let the people talk. You don't, you don't try to psychoanalyze them. And that's what turned me to your notes page. And I said, well, this guy did his homework of all these interviews. Yeah. I, I, I really wanted them to say it in their own words. You know, I, I wanted this, uh, I, I really wanted this book to be not your, well, I don't want to say you're not your typical biography because yeah, it, yeah, I want. I went back and did it in chronological order and everything. But what I really wanted to do, I wanted to go in and 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 do it like a fan. Uh, I wanted to. I didn't want to be too studious. I didn't want to be too uh, quotey uh, on one hand, but on the other hand, I I did want to let them speak. Uh, I I didn't want to overanalyze things, but at the same time. I wanted to spend a lot of time talking about the music. Um, I think a lot of times when in these biographies that I read, I get a lot of stuff about the person, but I don't get enough about the music, which is why well, I, you're I, reading it in the first place. Yeah. I might as well be reading about, you know, a, a Roman emperor. I mean, it's just, I, I want to know what made them want to make this music. And I want to hear, read about the music. Cause I love reading about music. Uh, everybody from, uh, uh, Peter Goralnik and to, uh, you know, um, uh, Grill Marcus. And so these are uh, the heroes of the genre, but, uh, I, I, you know, I can only wish to, to be up there. Um, it's funny, a little side story. Speaking of Goralnik, I sent him an email just because by this time I was looking, you know, um, seeing if anybody wanted else wanted to participate or maybe, you know, you send out little um, suggestions for, or questions about if you want to blurb for the book, you know? So uh, <laughs> by this point, I'm like brave. I'm like, why not send Peter Goralnik a, a <laughs> and he emailed me back. And he said, uh, you know, good luck with your book. I don't blurb anymore. And with, for obvious reasons, you know, it just, it would be, everybody's probably asking him that, you know, but he was just as gracious as he could be. And I can't remember what, but he gave me a little Abner reference in there. And I thought, damn, Peter Goralnik uh, sends me an email and gives me a little Abner reference. You can't beat that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's let, let, here's a, you just reminded me of something else. You know, Peter Gronick and Grell Marcus have both written about Elvis, and in the book you talk about John Hyatt's uh, you know worship of Elvis, and you have that great scene where he he learns that Elvis has died. Can you can you tell that story and about the impact Elvis had on Hyatt? Yeah, El- Elvis is a central character in in, uh, in Hyatt's story, and um, as far as as his influence, it's every most everybody in his generation. Uh, it's either the Elvis or Beatles. It's either Elvis or the Beatles, um, and and a little combination of both in, in most of us. But um, with with Elvis, that he had been, I think the deep connection with Elvis comes also from the fact that uh, he, he his childhood and his fact that he. He had a loving mother, Elvis did, in their their relationship. And I think John felt a lot of times he felt alone uh, when his brother, he looked up to him. This is me being a cheap psychoanalyst here at this moment. But I think he looked up to his brother so much. And when his brother died, that's where he got all his music. His, all, all his love of music came from him, Michael. And when Michael died, uh, uh he didn't have that anymore. And I think probably Elvis may have been some kind of link to, uh, that, that, and he, he knew, he felt that Elvis was probably lonely because he, he, even though he was surrounded by an amazing 
entourage of people from the Memphis Mafia and, and everyone in the world wanting, he probably felt very alone. Uh, and I think John felt that in him. Uh, so when Elvis died, he you know he heard it on the radio and he said he pulled over on the side of the road and it was, it was just some some cows uh, watching him cry um but uh it's typical john he's telling you a sad story making you laugh at the same time um but and 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 so riding with the king comes from that you know and and he's 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 always had a little bit of you know, tennessee plates you know he's he's just always had a little bit of elvis uh, fascination which which makes of course his music even better i love the section in your book about little village which is you know that story has such a great arc i remember when the little village album came out um i remember thinking how funny the song solar sex panel was Tell us about this would-be supergroup of Little Village and and how things played out with it because I think that's that's got a great it's got a great beginning, middle, and an end. It's it's such a great representative story about the music industry. <laughs> it well, I never thought of it that way, but I guess it does. Um, uh, well, it, I guess you can't you can't talk about Little Village without talking about Lenny Warnker, who is uh, um, like a, a Svengali of of the music industry, uh, which is. Uh, quite apropos since uh, just uh, recently Mo Austin uh, passed away. He was 95 years old and he was like the, the, uh, uh, a, a, you know, the musical guru of Warner brothers records. Well, in, in its heyday and, and Lenny Walker was like right there with him. And, and uh, Walker was in charge of, uh, he, 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 reprise and all these uh, great labels uh, uh, under the Warner umbrella. And he was, he grew up with Randy Newman, you know, <laughs> and, and they were just buddies and he got him on Warner brothers and, and who played guitar for Randy Newman on his first, but uh, Ry Cooter. And so Ry Cooter was on Warner brothers, Gus of Lenny. And, and uh, so they were all buddy buddies. And as they, as the years go past, um, Lenny loves uh, the traveling Wilburys uh, and, and uh, he wanted a super group for his label. And he looks out at, at Rye and then he sees, uh, you know, he's the, the bring the family thing had happened. And, and he thought, well, there's, we got our own right here, you know, got Jim Keltner does the drums for the Wilburys. Uh, so he and Rye are like joined at the hip. And, and uh, so why not bring, Hyatt and Lowe back into the fold because uh, they had worked together before. And, and so it all just came, came to uh, little village. The issue with little village, of course, was where bring the family was done in four days uh, under the direction more or less of John Hyatt and John Shalou, um, who was the producer. Uh, this uh, little village was more of a, a quote unquote collaborative effort um, where it was everybody kind of, did the songwriting all together and they had as in Nick Lowe's words, unlimited time and unlimited money. And, you know, I guess as it's been said before, uh, one thing I believe in is there's nothing better than pressure for uh, strong creativity. You know, if, if you can give somebody all the time in the world. <laughs> and all the money, a budget can, the constraints of a budget can force people to be more creative as well. Absolutely, yes. And within that framework of a short time period and, and no money. <laughs> but uh, now, you know, that being said, it does have some great moments. I had it on just uh, last night, as a matter of fact. Um, 
and and there are some times I can listen to it and it hits right. There are other times I listen to it and and the parts of it is just oh you know, <laughs> but. I think it had so much potential. It is a cute little album, and and uh, but it had so much uh, hype around it. It it could not live, and it was following Bring the Family, you know. Uh, so everybody was like, "Okay, show us what, show us Bring the Family too," and that's not what happened. Um, and it's just you couldn't. It was set up to be a disappointment in a way. Yeah. Everybody wants a sequel, and you know you don't always get Godfather two. No, <laughs> sometimes you get Godfather three. Exactly right. <laughs> so I, I want to end by talking about how you end the book. So uh, you know you could have end this. You could have ended this story at, at many different spots, and you ended by talking about Dolly Parton's twenty twenty cover of Hi, it's Have a Little Faith. And here's what you say: This is the very end of the book, and I want to read this to you and get your reaction to it because you could have ended this book in a hundred different ways. Here's how you do it. This is from your book. Quote. The ultimate gift is when you take what you've learned and pass it on, making someone else's life better. He's done that for me. And since you've read this far, he's most likely done it for you too. Can you talk about your choice of words there? <laughs> um, I, I just, I believe that the when you're, you're put on this earth to, to, to give, um, if you're given a talent, not to get too, I don't, I don't, you got to do spiritual, but if you're given a talent, I believe it's, it's the, your obligation to pass it on. And, and, and in doing that, you can make people, make people's lives better. And, and John, his music has touched me in, in many ways. And I, and, and that bring the family album in particular made me, uh, even though when I, I first heard it, when I was 17 years old, which was a strange time for a, a strange album for a 17 year old to embrace as much as he has. But, uh, it's still as relevant now, if not more so than it was then. Uh, and, and it's made me want to be a better person. So that's a doggone amazing, um, uh, piece of art. Um, and I hope that, and I, from what I've talked with other people, a lot of people share that same, same sentiment. So the fact that that song have a little faith is still, making differences in people's lives. Dolly Parton loved it so much. She, she joined this uh, group and did a, a, basically a techno <laughs> version of it. Uh, and, and, but you know, and uh, she, she, the, 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 the spirit of the song remains. So, and, and, and I think it's, it's fantastic that he's still as relevant as he is now than he was then. Thanks. And it was, and your, your book is fantastic as well. So I just got to say, it was great talking to you today. Uh, have a little faith. The John Hyatt story is available everywhere. It's published by the Chicago Review Press. It's a great read. It's a book that sent me back over and over to Hyatt. I had like this John Hyatt renaissance going on here in my house. For that, I have to thank you for sharing your, you know, like your enthusiasm kind of caught on to me. And every, the story of every album I found myself, oh, let me listen to that today. And I was on this, I was binging John Hyatt, but what a great thing to be able to do. So um, I heartily encourage the book to everybody. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. And I appreciate the kind words and, uh, it's uh, coming out in paperback, uh, as well. So if you, if you're more Great. of a paperback person, then, then grab it up. Great. Thank you so much, Michael. You too. Michael Elliott, everybody. Thanks.